This episode of Breaking Brave is brought to you by Soul Snacks. Soul Snacks are single ingredient, eco-conscious dog and cat treats sourced directly from farms in Ontario and wrapped in fully compostable packaging. Treating your pets never felt so good. Use coupon code BREAKINGBRAVE for 15% off on soulsnacks.ca. That's soulsnacks.ca. Hi, welcome to Breaking Brave. I'm Marilyn Barefoot. My guest today is Lucas Wilson. Lucas is here to educate me and perhaps you about gay conversion therapy, a type of therapy that is meant to change a person's sexuality or gender identity. Lucas talks very openly about his experiences with it at Liberty University in the United States and what he's now doing to try and get rid of this whole concept. Please welcome Lucas Wilson. I'm thrilled beyond thrilled to welcome today to Breaking Brave, Lucas Wilson. Thank you, Marilyn, for having me. It's so good to be here. I'm thrilled because I think one of the greatest things about interviewing brave people and things that we talk about here is that I get to learn so much, so much, and I can't wait for you to share it with the audience out there. Um, so let's let's maybe start with Liberty University. What is that for? Because I didn't know until I went looking it up and then I had to go to a map. Um, what is it and how long did you go there? Well, to keep it simple to start. Yeah. So Liberty University is the world's largest evangelical university located in Lynchburg, Virginia. It is notorious uh, because of its notorious founder, Jerry Falwell Sr., okay. who was one of the main architects of the moral majority, which is Essentially, if we trace, you know, Jerry Falwell to today, you can see why Mike Pence, or, you know, maybe not today, should I say, because, of course, Mike Pence is thankfully no longer <laughs> vice president of the U.S., uh, but the reason why evangelicals are in politics, really, um, Jerry Falwell was one of the main uh, driving forces behind that. And so Jerry Falwell uh, was a pastor of a megachurch, Thomas Road Baptist Church, and he also uh, founded Liberty University. And Liberty is now known, and it's been known for a long time, as a bastion for political conservatism, religious conservatism, particularly of the evangelical brand. And so, uh, you know, we Liberty has people come from all over, um, you know, who are, uh, you know, big-name conservatives, and they come and they speak or they teach, and it's this bastion of of evangelical culture and political conservatism in the U.S. today. And so uh, it's, uh, again, it's the world's largest uh, evangelical college, and it's actually the fifth biggest university in the States because of its online program. It has over 100,000 students online. At least that's what they report. So it's a, it's a force to be reckoned with. Wow. Thank you, Lucas. I didn't know about the online piece. If, this may be going down a very large rabbit hole, but I have to ask because I tried to do some research on this and it was it was very, the dispersal pattern on the word evangelical was huge. So, so I'm going to ask you for purposes of today's chat, what does the word evangelical mean to you? Yeah, so 
When I went to Liberty, I was an evangelical. I am no longer, uh, spoiler alert. But uh, when I went to Liberty, I went because I wanted to be around other like-minded folks, uh, particularly young people who were in university, uh, because in the evangelical uh, tradition, uh, it's very important that you are around other evangelicals. It's very important that you uh, surround yourself with a like-minded community because the world, aka everyone who's not evangelical, is seen as in some ways threatening or dangerous because ultimately they're not following Jesus and you want to surround yourself with other people who follow Jesus so that you're going in the right direction. And when I was at Liberty, that was actually this uh, this, the, the, this sort of uh, phrase that was thrown around on campus about peer pressure in the right direction. That Liberty has what's called peer pressure in the right direction, which of course is institutional pressure passed down to students who then you know police other students. But in evangelicalism, uh, you know, I identified as an evangelical because a big part of my faith was sharing the the gospel, the good news, what I considered at the time to be good news to the world. Um, so you see the world in very, you know, black and white terms. You see, the, you know, insider, outsider. So, you know, evangelicals are the insiders, outsiders or the world or the scary ones or the ones who need to be evangelized to are out there. Uh, and ideally what, you know, happens in evangelicalism or what evangelicals do is that they'll go out and proselytize. They'll go out and try to convince others to be evangelical, to be Christian, to follow Jesus. Um, but oftentimes what happens is that you see, you know, institutions, uh, evangelical churches or universities or whatever, um, that are very insular. They stick to themselves. They keep to themselves. But again, definitionally, the point of being an evangelical is to go out and to share this, you know, quote unquote, good news. Um, and that was incredibly important to me, uh, that first of all, I surround myself with people who are like-minded and then I go from Liberty and beyond, uh, and convince others to follow Christ the way that I did at the time. Okay, thank you. That helps a ton. Is this how you were raised, Lucas? I mean, was your family evangelical ipso facto? This was your upbringing, and that's how you came to it? Or was this something that you came to on your own outside of your family upbringing? So when, when I was young, we would go to church, you know, not necessarily all that regularly. I mean, a lot of the weekends we would go like any good Canadian family to the cottage, you know, and, and we didn't go to church because our church was in Toronto and our, our cottage was in Niagara. And so uh, we, we would go to church um, up until about grade two or three. Um, but after that, for the most part, we would just either go to the cottage or stay home and not go to church. And so I have... Uh, and I'm the youngest of five. And so all of my siblings had more exposure to church than I did. I was the one who had the least amount of time at, at Ford Baptist Church where we went. And when I got to around grade nine, that's when I started becoming interested in questions of religion. Because I think in a lot of ways, I felt like I had been excluded or left out from my siblings. Um, that, you know, they got more exposure and I didn't. However, um, you know, when it comes to like our family life, uh, and, you know, talking about religion. My dad was agnostic. Um, my dad never talked about religion. Um, my mom was and is haunted by her Baptist demons. So she grew up Baptist. And I think that those years of, of time in the church uh, really uh, haunted her, affected her. Uh, and so 
But nonetheless, it wasn't like when when we would talk at home about God that it was A, an extended conversation and B, that deep of a conversation. I remember learning my prayers and I remember learning uh, how to say grace. And we would always say grace before meals. And, you know, unless my dad was around, then he didn't care. <laughs> but uh, my mom certainly did. And uh, that was pretty much it. That was the extent of my religious upbringing at home. So I can't say that I was raised in a Christian home because knowing the Christian families that I knew you know, uh, when I was an evangelical and, and, and you know, uh, even, you know, I still have a number of friends who uh, are evangelical or are Christians, but, um, you know, seeing their families in, in contradistinction to mine, very different. You know, we, we just didn't have a religious, you know, atmosphere. There wasn't really any discussion or uh, really practicing of it other than, again, grace and, you know, learning how to say your prayers that rhyme. <laughs> <You know? laughs> now I lay me down to sleep. Yep, I had that. Absolutely. <laughs> I pray the Lord my soul to keep, Marilyn. But you know what? <laughs> I digress. There you are. So, okay, that's fantastically interesting. So you're in grade nine. So your first year um, high school. Can I ask, like, where you went to high school? It was in Toronto, right? And I'm going to make these geographical designations because— a, we have an audience all over the world, and B, Liberty Universities in the United States, as you've already explained. So where'd you go to high school, if you can tell me? Yeah, so I went to high school at Rosedale Heights School of the Arts in oh. Toronto. Uh, born and raised in Toronto, and uh, Rosedale was the high school that I chose to go to, and I feel like the writing was on the wall. <laughs> that Whether it about my sexuality when I was in dance class and art class and winning awards, uh, but, uh, yeah, I went, to, I went to high school in Toronto downtown. Oh, I love that school. It, I'm old enough that it wasn't around when I had, when I was in high school, but I've always, always, I've driven by it and kind of looked out the window of the car and thought, I bet amazing creative things happen inside that school. Truly. And, and it's a beautiful campus. And then the teachers, I cannot explain how wonderful they all were. I still stay in contact with so many of them because they were so excellent, um, and it is funny to talk to them about, you know, grade nine to 12 Luke versus Luke now and hearing their perspectives because uh, they illuminate, you know, uh, things that I didn't realize at the time. But, you know, uh, that's that. That's the growing up process. So grade 12 is when you would have started to look at, make some decisions about, make some applications to universities, colleges. How then could you tell us, tell me a little bit of the story of how did you come to Liberty University as even in the collection of thoughts you were having about what college university would you like to go to? Yeah. So when I was thinking about which university to attend, there really were two in mind, but I, but it wasn't even a fair, you know, it wasn't going to be fair because I, I had already made up my mind that I wanted to go to Liberty. Uh, it was between staying in Toronto and going to University of Toronto uh, or Liberty. And looking back, just thinking about the quality of education I could have received, <laughs> it would have been wonderful uh, to, had I uh, received an actual education. However, I did, in fact, of course, choose Liberty. Uh, and we can, you know, we'll table that discussion for, for now, I suppose. But um, when I was thinking about which school to go to, I had received uh, an offer from Liberty. Uh, they, get, they offered me a, a scholarship to go, which actually financially enabled me to do it. However, like, uh, like I like to say now, uh, when you receive a scholarship, you should be doing scholarship, so doing academic work. And I don't necessarily know if I can define my time at Liberty all that academically. But 
Uh, I, when I was making my decision, again, finances came into play, uh, you know, a few other things came into play, but I do remember I was making a little checklist of pros and cons, you know, uh, should I stay or should I go? And the only thing that I put down, uh, as, uh, cause everything, if it was a pro, I'd put a check. Uh, and if it was a pro, you know, for, uh, university of Toronto, I put a check. The only thing I put two checks for, uh, in the pros column uh, was the gay conversion therapy program. Because I knew that it existed before I attended Liberty because I went down on a bus trip six times to go to Liberty and check out the campus. And when I went there, there was this uh, this ad essentially saying, you know, do you struggle with same-sex attraction, which is the verbiage that's used in evangelicalism? Uh, same-sex attraction equals gay. And, you know, I, of course, recognize that I... Uh, was gay or at the time what I would have said struggled with same-sex attraction. And so I actually asked some folks on campus, I was like, yo, uh, what about that guy who uh, apparently uh, helps people who are gay uh, trying to be, you know, <laughs> test the waters? And they told me about, you know, that he's someone who helps people overcome homosexuality essentially and or uh, not necessarily overcome homosexuality, but someone who uh, helps people find attraction in the opposite gender. And I was like, well, that's, and of course I didn't say this to these folks, but I knew that that was something at the time I, I really wanted. And so that was a big deciding factor for me as to why I eventually attended Liberty. But that was, uh, yeah, the main, the main thrust behind why I ultimately went to LU. So back in Canada, before you're packing up and going to Liberty University, had you come out, had you said, I am a gay man, had you express that to anybody in Canada, friends, family at all? I mean, obviously there was a struggle going on internally, but had you talked to anybody about it in Canada about this is who I am and this is what, you know, this is how I'm feeling? No, I had not talked to anyone about being gay. I, other than there was one, there was one guy on, on MySpace <laughs> one time, there was that website, you know, uh, MySpace. It's like the prototype to Facebook. The other than one person, random person on MySpace, yeah, I didn't, I never told anyone. I was incredibly closeted. Again, most people knew, like, there's just no way that <laughs> people didn't know I was gay. You know, I had a lot of uh, interests and talents in, in the arts and uh, among other reasons that maybe, you know, I think people knew I was gay and I wasn't out to myself. I think other people realized it mm -hmm. and that's kind of the where it was, where I was at the time. Okay. So you've got the scholarship to go to Liberty University. You pack up your life in Toronto and off you go to Lynchburg, Virginia. How does this now unfold for you in terms of meeting Dane Emmerich and getting involved in this conversion therapy one-on-one -on -one as well as group. So how do you make the jump from here I am with my trunk and I'm moving into my dorm room to how do I get involved in this program? Yeah. So going down to Liberty, my big plan in, uh, in going down was that I was going to have my fun and date evangelical guys kind of deal and then at the end of my time at Liberty, I was going to then go to conversion therapy really quickly, change, <laughs> find a woman, marry her, and off I'd go home. That was my big plan. My master plan that, that never came to fruition. Right. Um, believe it or not. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Well, it's nice to know what the, what the plan was. And so how did it actually unfold 
Because it wasn't according to plan, obviously. Yeah, not according to plan. No, so I, I had this big plan and I moved into my dorm and my dorm was just a bunch of guys who were such, <laughs> they were just not nice people. And, you know, Christians are, what do they say? That you will know we were Christians by our love. And I don't know if I could have <laughs> defined these people by their love. Um, but I had this really, you know, crummy dorm situation. And at Liberty, that when you move into your dorm, it's kind of like your frat yeah. house. Like that's how they sort of model it. And so I was around a bunch of other guys I just didn't like. There were a few friends I made in the dorm, but by and large, it was just this really crummy group. But there was this one guy who was my spiritual life director. And at Liberty, on the dorm, you have resident advisors who are the head of the hall. Under them, you have spiritual life directors. And under them, you have prayer leaders. And under prayer leaders, you have uh, the rest of us, you know, plebeians who aren't holy enough or religious enough to, to be on leadership. And so with this model, uh, you're supposed to essentially be able to go to these folks if need be or if you have any spiritual questions. And so my spiritual life director, uh, he and I became chummy and we were having, you know, just he was a nice guy and I wanted to hang out with him. And I had no idea that he he was gay but he did one time I was I was uh, I was getting changed and my door was open and he passed by and he saw me and he said, hey, and I was like, hi, uh, what's up? And we started chatting. And then by the end of it, he's like, we should uh, we should hang out sometime. And I'm standing there like, oh, yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> Let's hang out. And, you know, again, like for the most part, the guys in the hall just weren't all that nice. And so to have someone who was nice, it was Absolutely. Well, I've nice. got a friend and, <laughs> and so this guy seems like he's, he's okay and he cares about me and yeah, good. Exactly. Exactly. And so that Friday we watched uh, Dark Knight, was it Dark Knight Rising, the Batman movie? Um, and we watched it in his room. I fell asleep. And when I woke up, he said like, hey, do you want to like, you know, uh, <laughs> do you want to hang out further? And I said, sure. And so long story short, we had a weird romantic encounter that night. And the next day I texted him and I said, hey, we really should talk about, you know, what happened. And again, like in the grand scheme of things, it's nothing that actually like really went down. It was just that at the time, this is your first like sort of romantic moment. And when that happens and then, you know, uh, when that happens, it's a big deal. But when I said to him, hey, we should probably talk about, you know, uh, uh, what happened, he said, there's nothing to talk about. And I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. Like, no, we can't not talk about this. We can't pretend that we didn't, you know, kiss or whatever. And like, and so he said, uh, he's like, no, there's nothing to talk about. We're not doing anything. We're not, you know, we're not pursuing this. And so I was kind of left without any real guidance as to what to do. This was my first romantic encounter. This was my, you know, and I'm closeted to the nines or not to the nines. Uh, you know, all this to say is, I had no idea how to navigate the situation. He uh, wouldn't chat with me. And so I had one friend who I had told him that there was an issue between me and my spiritual life director. Uh, and he was like, well, what happened? What happened? And I said, well, I don't really want to get into it. Um, but I, I did write a poem about it. <laughs> and in in the research I've done, this individual you, you're calling Gabriel. So Gabriel is the friend who I told. Via that, the poem. Um, when I read him the poem, he's the one I read the poem to. I don't know what the poem said, and I'm not going to ask you to read it right here, right now. But it obviously made it somewhat clear to Gabriel that I'm struggling here with same-sex attraction. 
Yeah, the the way that the poem unfolded, it it sets up like these two people and the the narr- like the speaker in the poem is talking with the other person who like won't who like close the door and won't come outside and like you know won't like I'm outside and I'm cold in the fall but he's inside and warm and watching me and so I I read him I read Gabriel this poem or the you know my friend who I call Gabriel in the in the article and he he used to always whenever we talked about anything gay. Uh, but of course, this was our first conversation about anything gay. Whenever we talked about anything gay, his he would he would get these these like lips, these funny lips, they like quivering lips, almost like just like pure excitement <laughs> and like uh, uh, and so he he got all kind of like awkward and he had these funny lips that started you know quivering and he said uh, I think I think I know what your poem's about. And this is just after I read it to him, and I was like, oh shoot, <laughs> like, <laughs> my cover is blown. He knows that I'm gay, and I said, well, what do you think it's about? And he said, well, I don't want to guess. And be wrong and then be embarrassed. And I said, why would you be embarrassed? He said, well, and then it was essentially this few minutes of awkward fumbling back and forth where we're, you know, trying to dance around what both of us about eventually said, which was that we, quote unquote, struggle with same sex attraction. And so that day um, when I when I read him the poem, I asked him or he asked me, actually, he said, have you ever been attracted to women? And I, I had, you know, been self uh, uh, self-deceiving for years, claiming that I was in some ways bisexual, <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I've, 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 you know, I've, I find uh, women attractive, or I've, you know, found, I had a crush on a woman." I said, "How about you?" And he said, "No, never." And today, uh, Gabriel is not only married, but he has children, uh, married to a woman, I should say. And this is, and he's not uh, exceptional in the literal sense of the word. Like there are a number of my friends from Liberty who are gay who are married to women with children. Am I, I'm using the the fictitious name because that's the one that came up in the research. Mac was he the spiritual advisor? No, Mac was so. It, Mac's another uh, person I met on campus. He and I, uh, for the longest time, I would see Mac on campus. You know, we our, our schedule, I, I suppose, aligned, and I would see him in the cafeteria. And our eyes always, you know, we were we would linger a little bit too long. This is what I later found out the term is cruising. <laughs> if you're walking and you you know you're making eyes at people, this is what it. And I I learned this way after the fact, um, you know, and so. Mac was someone who I had this big crush on. I thought he was so cute. I always was curious, you know, because you see these people on campus, right? And they're and you you're on a campus where you can't express that you're gay. You can't uh, ask other people if you know, like, hey, just so and so is he, uh, you know, is he is he playing for this team or that? Right? You can't really find out anyone's sexuality, let alone express your own. And so you're constantly questioning and 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 second guessing every interaction you have with someone with a guy who's really friendly or those guys who are looking at you or those guys who, you know, have that sustained eye contact that is returned uh, twofold. And you're like, wait a second, does this mean this guy likes me? Well, I met Mac, this guy who I'd seen around campus. I saw him in the group therapy and that, that cleared things up, whether or not (laughs) he was uh, gay. You call it Christian speed dating. Yeah. There's a whole bunch of guys who are in the conversion therapy group and and <laughs> and now there's no guessing anymore. You know that everybody in in the group is gay or struggling with, you know, same-sex attraction as is politically correct at Liberty University. Well, they're that fantastic. I'm joining the group cuz yeah. I can figure this out in a heartbeat, right? Yeah. Exactly. I had so yeah, I call it <laughs> yeah, gay Christian speed dating. Um because when I was there, again, you're on a campus, you have no idea who's gay, and you then have the opportunity, it, because what happened was, 
uh, Dane Emmerich, my conversion therapist, he um, essentially said, if you make enough progress as in one-on-one therapy with me and you show that you're, you know, progressing and, you know, uh, doing what you need to do, then you have the possibility or the, the opportunity to go uh, to the group therapy. And so I would the entire time, again, like you're, it was always this, this, this back and forth, this tug and this pull and push and pull, right? Where it's like, I'm fighting against my, my, my sexuality. I don't want uh, to be gay. I want to become straight. But then of course you are gay and <laughs> you want to, you know, live into that. Right. And so it's like this both, but you're told it's disgusting, but you know that that is, it's you and it's this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So when I was told that there was the opportunity to go to this group therapy, part of me was very excited because I'm like, I get to know now who's gay on campus. And so I had said to a friend who was also gay, uh, I said, yo, do you want to do you want to go to this this group with me? And let's ask Dane if we can go. Dane being, again, the conversion therapist. And he said and uh, my friend said yes. And so we went and asked Dane and Dane said yes. And so we went to the group and I remember it was such an exciting moment that turned into such a disappointing moment so quickly once I entered the room. <laughs> it was just like all the usual suspects, like the guys that you knew, the guys that you were expecting, other than a few. Again, my crush was there, so that was kind of cool. Mac. Uh, but yes. Mac, yeah, exactly. But I knew other than than Mac and maybe, a, you know, one other guy who I actually was a friend of mine, and, and that was a surprise to see him there. I, I knew that this wasn't a group for me. And in large part, it was just such a bizarre group, right? Like when I walked in, all the guys, again, part of conversion therapy, they'll say, it's not a matter of what you do that'll make you straight. Like it's not a matter of if you act a certain way or do the activities of men like sports and carpentry and I don't know, wrestling, all these like very- <laughs> uh, Typical you know, masculine stuff. All the stuff that men do, Marilyn. And, you know- I'm thinking, so So they said, it's not a matter of what you do that'll make you straight. Like you have to do these activities. It's just a matter of what you do that'll make you straight. And you're like, wait, did I, did I hear that correctly? They're like, well, here's the thing. It's like, if you start doing the activities of men, then eventually you're going to start more so thinking about yourself like a man and aligning with the capital M masculine that will ultimately realign your, not just gender identity and expression, but your sexuality. That's, that's the premise. That's the conceit of conversion therapy, right? That's what the very foundation is that if you act and habituate certain actions, you will eventually become uh, straight. So when I was in, when I went into this group and I saw these guys and they were all doing their best to approximate a very stereotypical masculine rhetoric. And it was so incredibly cringy, right? So it's these, again, these gay men and they're all sitting in the room saying like, hey, dude, like, what's up, bro? And you're like, that sounds so inauthentic, so put on, so forced. And it was so uncomfortable. And I was just like, I don't want to be in a space like this. I don't want to pretend like this, even though there were things that I changed about myself and the activities that I did because I thought that was going to be more masculine. You know, even the way I walked, the way I uh, used my hands or, or should I say more accurately, didn't use my hands at a certain point. Um, you know, these were the things that I thought were more feminine. So I stopped doing them, but being in that group and going to that group and meeting these other guys, it was just such an uncomfortable experience that even for me at that point was like, no, thank you. Not for, not for me. Correct me if I'm wrong, Lucas, but originally that group conversion therapy was called masquerade and then it became 
armor bearers. First band of brothers and then armor bearers. There was this term, right? The 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 band of brothers was being kind of lobbed around and I pulled this Hey man, Jesus is really working through you, dude. Like that that just sounds like I don't know how you didn't laugh, except, yeah. you know, this is what they're preaching and teaching, so you got to go along with it. It's just so cringy. And but you know what? This is and this is the thing about it all. It's like it is so cringy. It's so looking back it, it it's like it's the basis of a TV show. Like this could be, you know, something that could be big. <laughs> um and I would love to do that TV show. But putting that aside, you know, it's also unbelievably tragic, right? It's this like yeah. space that was so incredibly sad. Like what a depressing little room that was and what a depressing room that has continued to be. You know, that there are these guys in there who believe that who they are is disgusting, who they are is sinful and that who they are simply can't be. And so they have to put on this affected persona. They have to perform and that's the basic premise of conversion therapy is performance. You perform, you act, right? That they are all actors um, in this charade of masculinity. Again, like masculinity, femininity, wherever you fall along the spectrum, it doesn't matter, right? But uh, to these men, they believe that they can't operate within evangelical spaces and they can't be in relationship to God if they are to be uh, attracted to men. And so they think that the way to fix that, as if there was anything that needed to be fixed, through their performance of their gender. Because again, conversion therapy says at its core, it's not a, a sexuality issue, it's a gender issue. So if you align the gender with the proper gender to the proper body, uh, then you know, uh, you'll, you'll realign the sexuality as well. And so thinking back about that space, thinking back about the group uh, conversion therapy, it's unbelievably tragic. I can feel it. And I wasn't even in that room of, you know, if you're going to choose God, you can't be true to what your calling is sexually and what you're feeling inside of you. Mm -hmm. This is an either or. Mm -hmm. You can't have both. And so... Well, that's exactly it. It is this either or. And that's the, that's the MO of evangelicalism. It's this black and white cosmology. It's, you know, of God, of Satan, of the enemy, of, you know, the spirit. Like, it's always this, this either-or paradigm. And so there's, of course, not much room if, in fact, you don't fall within that binary, right? And these people, when they realize their lived realities do not align with that binary, they have to consider, like, okay, either I... Again, it's, it goes back to the either-or. And so I think that for me, when I realized that I didn't fit into that binary, I needed to get out. But again, I think what's just so tragic about conversion therapy and specifically group the group conversion therapy at Liberty is that there have been not only hundreds, but literally thousands of young gay men whose lives have been ruined because of this conversion therapy, who this conversion therapist, Dane Emmerich, has ruined the lives of thousands and thousands of men and, you know, again, going back to my friend who I call Gabriel in the article, this man, he's told me, he's like, I've never been attracted to women. And he's now married to a woman with kids. And not only was he married, you know, not only is, was that an issue, but now he has kids and these kids are implicated. Of course, the woman who he's, to whom he's married is implicated, right? And like thinking about her life and thinking about why she chose to do this, because the crazy part is that in evangelical circles, the women know their husbands are attracted to men. It's not that this is like hidden from them. 
They know. That, I know. F- they know. Yeah. So when I went back to Lynchburg in 2015, I met up with Gabriel for a drink. I was with my ex at the time. And at one point in the conversation, we were all sitting, you know, there was a group of us. Uh, we're all sitting around having, you know, uh, cocktails. And I looked across the group at, at Gabriel and he looked at me and I mouthed to him and I was pointing at my ex. I mouthed to him, this is my boyfriend. And he looked at me like, and then those like, you know, those funny lips that he got, they got sort of quivery. And he said, can, can, he's like, let's, let's go talk. And he motioned for us to go uh, to the corner of the bar and to chat for a quick second. So I was like, of course. So we go over and he, he's like, oh my gosh, what? Uh, so this is your, you know, this, you're with this guy. Like, do you think it's okay? Do you think God thinks it's okay? Like, when did you come to this conclusion? How long have you been dating? And just like a thousand questions, of course, wildly interested in, you know, all things gay. And he uh, and I, you know, talked for whatever. My, my ex came over and we were all talking. Um, and he said to me afterwards, he said, can I, can I call you sometime? Is that okay if I call you sometime? Um, because his wife was about to show up. He said, I, I just want to ask you some questions. He never called. And I think there are a number of reasons why he never called. Mm. But the thing was, when we did talk and his wife was on her way, he said, yeah, I told her about you too. Which, And at the time I was like, somewhat in and out of the closet. I was just about to come out of the closet later that year I came out, but he said, yeah, I told her about you. And I said, so like, what was the conversation? Cause I had, I didn't, I don't think at that time I really knew that they were together until, you know, just before I got there. And he, uh, when, when he was talking about her, yeah, he said that, you know, he told her and that she was okay with it and that she was going to like be by his side and they were going to do this together. And I think that for people like her, she believes, not that she believes she's the savior in the sense of like, you know, Jesus is the savior because Jesus is, of course, in evangelical evangelical imagination, the savior. But I think that they believe that they are essentially the hands of God, like they're, they're God's using them and that they are going to keep this man to whom they're married in the evangelical fold, which will ultimately allow that man not to go to hell, right? If he were to go and live the gay lifestyle, whatever the hell that is, you know, that ultimately he could lose his salvation. So I think these women think they are like salvific tools. They think they are the hands and feet of Jesus. And that in and of itself is a tragedy because it's not just one or two. There are are many women I know who uh, know about their husband's sexualities yet are married to them and remain married to them. My heart is breaking for these men. You had referenced um, Lucas in some of my um, research you can't live a lie for your entire life without this. Eventually, you need to break out of this emotional, psychological, unfulfilling prison life you've chosen for yourself. How does that unfold for these these poor, tragic people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, for a lot of us, we did get out, right? I have a number of friends who are gay, and a number of us went through conversion therapy, a number of us didn't. Um, and that was at the time I was, you know, really chummy with some, not so with much with others. Um, it was some of I've become friends with afterwards. And so I've seen, uh, or I've, I've been in contact with a number of folks who did get out, um, and some who didn't get out right away, but after a year or two of trying to, you know, remain in the community, the evangelical community, we're like tech with this, we're off, we're going to do our own thing or, you know, and, and, and all these folks are on different faith journeys too, right? Some are still heavily committed to the church. Others, like me, are not. Um, and some are, you know, uh, so they, they fall on, you know, all across the spectrum. 
all along the spectrum. And so, but then there are, again, there are many who don't. And even with Mac, the guy that I had a crush on, um, you know, he and I, we started texting and Skyping when I was at Liberty and, you know, we, we were, uh, chatting more and more and it became very clear, obviously that he was interested in me. I was interested in him. And at a certain point he, it came out that he had a girlfriend and I was like, oh, heck no. I was like, I'm not, I'm not going to be an accomplice to your cheating. Like, and I, not that we even had done anything. Um, but you were setting the ground rules down for him. Right. And I said, here's the thing. I said, we, we, you can choose, you can either like, like date or whatever, or uh, you can stick with your girlfriend. Like it, it's an either or here. <laughs> Talk about either or. And he said, let me go think about it. And so he did and pray about it too. Um, but he came back and he said, you know, I think it, we're doing the wrong thing by, you know, chatting. So I think I'm going to stick with my girlfriend here. Um, and again, he's also married with kids now. Um, like, again, there are just so many of these folks who, again, who were in conversion therapy group or uh, just in the one-on-one, and I found out afterwards, who are married to women. And so I don't know what happens to these folks because, or what's going to happen to these folks, because some of them really do stick to these marriages for their entire lives. Um, but there are many who don't. And I have a friend here in uh, Southeast or in, in Ontario who he was the the worship leader at his church. Um, he was married, he has uh, a, at least a daughter. I don't know if he has any more kids. And he came out when in his fifties and he and I have never actually talked about like, where his head at is at now in regards to all of this, because it's like, imagine that knowing that you wasted so many years of your life for what? Because someone told you a bunch of lies that someone told you a bunch of homophobic drivel and you believed it. And again, I think sometimes people from the outside of evangelicalism are like, how didn't you figure this out? Like how, how could you have been so stupid to even get involved in some ways? And I think that, it's crazy to realize the power of a community. It's crazy to realize how inundated you become in evangelical sort of conversations and circles that, again, the way that it's framed is that the world is dangerous, the world is scary, and to stick within is to stick with God, and to stick with God is to have the good and full life. And when you're taught this over and over and over, again, you have this, this sense of of optimism. It's a cruel optimism that your life is going to uh, be better because of it. And of course, you realize as time goes on that my life isn't better because of this. In fact, a lot of what's going on within this uh, evangelical world or s- sphere is quite damaging. And you start to unbind yourself from this community. But I think for the guys who um, will eventually divorce their, their wives as they should, because I don't think it's a fit marriage for them or their wives or their children. Like this is not something that people should be, you know, living with and or around, um, that they're going to regret so much of their existence. And that is, again, it's another tragedy. So sad. And I, I there's got to be a lot of painkillers involved in living a lie. Drugs, alcohol, continually every single day of your life, quashing down who you are and not being able to talk to the world openly about it, particularly in today's world, mm-hmm. where it's so much more accepted, if you will, than what it would have been, say, 20 years ago. Well, it's funny that, so I think in evangelical circles, like there's not, uh, there's less of an emphasis on like things like alcohol and drugs. Maybe there are prescription drugs. I, again, maybe that's more <laughs> 2021. I've, I've been out of the evangelical world for a while, um, for like meh, six years now. But 
I, I do see these guys who um, uh, are in the articles I talk about and also other guys who I don't write about, but I know who are gay and married to women. Um, but there's one guy in particular who I see him uh, and he's obsessive now. So it seems like all he posts about are, are, his, are his marathons and going for runs. And of course, people's, I, I'm, in a, I'm a runner. I love running and it's, it's something that I do and I try to do as regularly as possible. But seeing him... You know, he's lost a lot of weight and it seems like a pretty drastic amount in comparison to um, what he was. And seeing that it, it just seems like this like almost shell or like skeleton of a man in a lot of ways that he's poured himself into this running. And I'm only theorizing, I'm only hypothesizing, but seeing him in the state that he is now and his this sort of obsession with running, I think it says two things. One, it speaks to the physicality that is required of one in conversion therapy. Do those physical masculine things. Not that running is necessarily the masculine, but it is something that's physical and embodied. Um, but the other part of it is this sense of control, I think, that I can at least control my body. I can at least control, you know, how I move it and the, my weight and whatever. And so I think it just, again, it, it's, a, it's an indirect way of expressing what I see to be probably a lot of sadness, right? That there's so much that this guy can't say or do like you were saying. He can't be himself. Um, so what he can do is he can control his body in some way, shape, or form, and in this case, running as a way to assert some sort of agency because most of the agency that he's been, you know, that one has has been taken from him because of his religious uh, circumstances. It makes complete sense. I want to jump to the class action suit and to talk about now, first of all, thank you for being so brave, Lucas, and in, in bravely telling us your story, but also everything you've gone through and standing proudly and saying, this is who I am in the hell with those people because I'm going to live my my true life. But beyond living your true life, Let's talk about the class action suit. So there's there's stuff happening on the floor of the Senate here in Canada because you're based now back in Ontario. But then also there's a class action suit in the United States. So let's start with the class action suit in the United States. If you can just give our listeners a, a bit of a reference, what it is and why it's happening. Yeah, so I am one of, I believe, 40 now. Uh, there we've We've acquired a few more plaintiffs. Uh, but I'm one of 40 plaintiffs in a class action lawsuit against the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, the lawsuit is being brought forth by the Religious Exemption Accountability Project, uh, led by Paul Southwick. It is a phenomenal, you know, the uh, it's called REAP, uh, Religious Exemption Accountability Project. They're this phenomenal organization, and they are, the main purpose of the organization is to sue the U.S. Department of Education because the U.S. Department of Education every single year gives out not only millions, but billions of dollars to religious colleges and universities that actively discriminate against their LGBTQ students, whether that be in the form of conversion therapy, having uh, policies that one cannot be gay, that one cannot act on being gay, whatever their uh, outdated and homophobic policies are. Uh, we are saying in the lawsuit, we're saying you know, these schools, they are allowed to discriminate against LGBTQ students. We're not saying they should. We're saying they're allowed to, but they cannot do that on the dime of the American taxpayer. So in the same way that you can't discriminate on the basis of sex or race, we're saying one cannot, you know, a school cannot discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation and or gender identity and expression. So 
Right now, we've entered the beginning of the lawsuit where we are, uh, again, just sort of establishing ourselves. Um, and we will hopefully uh, be going to court sometime this year and next year. Um, but up until now, it's mostly just ra raising awareness about the lawsuit, um, speaking at public uh, hearings, like Title IX hearings uh, and whatnot, and uh, having our voices heard from the outset. And we'll be going into this full force uh, over the next year or few years, <laughs> depending on the, on the outcome. I didn't have any idea of this. I didn't have any idea of the money involved and the funding that is going to these schools. So I'm going to read these numbers uh, from 2018, which was the last time that the data was available. But religious institutions were given $4.2 billion in 2018. And Liberty University, where you attended, was specifically given $723 million from the federal government in the United States. And these are taxpayers' dollars. And yet, this is the behavior, not only LGBTQ2 plus people, but women, I understand, on the campus are not treated fairly or equally. And Black students are not treated fairly or equally either. So it's just, I'll go out there on the limb and say, a white supremacist culture. It absolutely is. And I have a lot of friends who I've talked to uh, about their experiences as people of color at Liberty and hearing their stories. It's just, it's just craziness, right? Like for instance, and this isn't some, this is not a personal friend of mine, but there was uh, a professor recently who said to a black student, uh, he said something, he made a joke essentially that he wasn't going to whip him. And of course he's referring, you know, to, to, to slavery. And, you know, there, when I was at Liberty, they had a forum and the forum's guiding question was, what does the Bible say about interracial dating? This was in 2009, right? So this is like very recently. And again, the, the very asking of the question, what does the Bible say about, you know, interracial dating leaves room open for people to have interpretations. And of course they are interpretations, but a lot of evangelicals refuse to believe that their interpretation of the Bible is an interpretation. They just say that's what God says. But um, you know, their interpretation of, of scripture would allow one to believe anything other than, of course, interracial dating is okay according to scripture. Like where in the Bible does is this ever said? But that's the kind of culture that liberty breeds. That's the kind of culture liberty creates, right? Like they're they're hosting these forums. They are uh, hiring these professors. They are enabling students uh, to have these opinions, particularly right now, actually, they have uh, a, on campus what they call an evangelical think tank, which I think is a contradiction in terms, but uh, <laughs> they have on campus an evangelical think tank. It's called, I think it's the Standing for Freedom or the Center for Standing for Freedom, something like this. They regularly uh, publish racist tweets. They regularly, like for instance, there's a tweet, it's essentially saying like, stand up for your opinion. And it's this white basketball player standing while all the black basketball players are kneeling during the national anthem. Right. And it's just like, this is what they put out. They've not, they've not, the, this evangelical think tank on Liberty's campus has not uh, published one academic peer reviewed journal article, which of course is the measure of a good, or of a good think tank. Uh, and since their inception, they've not published one. So to give you an idea again, how reputable or credible this place is, um, uh, there, there's a little insight. But on top of that, you should just check out their Twitter and see the drivel that they, they post. Um, but no, so yeah, for, for black students, for people of color, uh, it is not a campus that I would describe as a safe place, 
Um, they're also for women. They have a, a, a modest is hottest culture. Of course, that's rape culture, right? That's like a rape. Uh, it's very rapey language that modest is hottest, that women should be covering up their bodies because if they don't cover up their bodies, then men might do things. Men might, you know, think things as if to say that women are to blame. Women are the 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 genesis of the sin here in the sense that they're the ones who are not covering up their bodies. And if only they were to cover up their bodies, then, you know, men wouldn't stumble, men wouldn't sin. And so, and then of course, you know, as I've said, the conversion therapy program, and then just the more, the, the, the wider homophobic culture of liberty, uh, it creates a very unsafe space for people who are different. It creates a very unsafe place uh, or space, pardon me, for minority folks. And this is Liberty University. This is how Liberty University has, has operated uh, for decades. But it's breeding it. So people who don't step out, as you and some of your friends have, and have written incredibly interesting and articulate articles about all of this and why this is wrong and launching a class action lawsuit, there are people who are toeing the line, who are believing this, who are raising their kids to be the same way. So it's it's promoting it in continuing this horrific behavior throughout more and more generations. And that's exactly it. I think that liberty is not only a reflection of American evangelicalism as it is today. I think it's also a major shaper of American evangelicalism, right? So if liberty has over 100,000 students online, according to their numbers, um, they're pumping out a number of, of students who are in line with their doctrinal confessions, right? They are pumping out a number of students who are going into the world uh, to change the world for Jesus. Again, Changing the world for, G for Jesus could be okay in some senses, but I think in a lot of ways it's an imperialist project, right? It's trying to convert people from who they are and change them into something that they're not. Um, for what purpose, too, of course, right? Like, what are the gains of following Jesus? I can uh, safely say that I, there weren't many for me <laughs> in so many ways. And this is the thing. Liberty is shaping American evangelicalism, and, Amer and American evangelicalism is one of the most, if not the most prominent uh, denomination in the States. And so you have this incredibly powerful cultural religious influencer that is, again, creating what they call, they say they're training champions for Christ. They're training folks who are homophobic. They're training folks who are sexist. They're training folks who are racist. And this is what they're producing. And these are the, the citizens that they're producing. And I think it's something that people need to recognize that liberty is not just this small scale operation. This is a force to be reckoned with. And then we we haven't talked about it, and I'm not a politically charged individual, but politics is right in the center of all of this. When when I was reading that Jerry Falwell Jr., the ex-president of Liberty University, is saying to the students, oh no, it's fine. COVID's nothing. I expect you to be back at school and attending classes and everything's fine, which is, you know, pretty much the whole Trump rhetoric all the way through of this is nothing. It's a flu. It'll go away. Don't worry. All mixed into this horrible, tragic cocktail is the politics as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's denying facts. It's denying reality. It's And, you know, even what we were just saying about women, people of color and queer folks, it's denying people's lived realities as well, right? So to gaslight them and say, oh, no, it's not racism, it's this. Or, oh, no, it's not sexism, it's not homophobia, it's this. Yeah, we are very much in evangelicalism. We are framed as the 
antagonist framed as the bad guy, the scary guy, uh, or gal. Evangelicals are terrified of the queer community in so many ways. Um, and it's funny, they oftentimes, they will also claim things like, oh, they're obsessed with sex. No one talks about sex more than evangelicals. I can tell you that much. You go to church, you go to, you know, youth groups, you go to whatever. All they talk about is sex in so many ways. It's, it's, it's bizarre. Anyway, I digress. It's okay, because we've, we've gone down so many interesting pathways here. But where I'm going to come back, we started with the class action lawsuit in the United States. And now I'm going to jump into the Senate. And Rosa Galvez, you you sent me the video of Rosa Galvez, who's a professor at the University of Laval, and she's a senator in Quebec. Let's talk about how how your mission for protecting the rights of LGBTQ plus individuals plays out in Canada. Let's look at the Canadian side of the border and what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think I think Canadians would like to think that we are uh, liberal Canadians. We'd like to think that we are leagues ahead of the states, that we are so much more progressive, uh, but we're unfortunately not uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, so here in Canada, there is right now uh, in the Senate, it's being discussed uh, Bill C six. Bill C six passed uh, through the House and it's been passed on to the Senate, and we're waiting to see if it'll be. Uh, uh, changed into law. Um, Bill C-6 is looking to uh, ban conversion therapy uh, in Canada. Um, there are a number of things that I think the bill could be improved upon or that, that you know, uh, within the bill that could be improved. But nonetheless, right now, there is legislation that's that we're trying to pass to make it so that LGBTQ youth are protected from conversion therapy in Canada. Um, we are not necessarily sure what's going to happen with the Senate. Um, my, my testimony was read, uh, a number of other survivors of conversion therapy, their, uh, testimonies were read as well. And we're waiting to hear back. We're waiting to find out what the verdict is. And a lot of folks are saying that what's going to happen is that the Senate, uh, the bill's going to die in the Senate, which in some ways is not great because in the meantime, bef- between now and when it actually is passed, cause it will pass. It's just a matter of time. I do believe that, there are going to be youth who are not going to be protected from conversion therapy. However, conversion therapy, even if the bill is passed, will continue to exist in Canada. Like all crime, it'll just go underground. Um, it'll be behind a pastor's, uh, you know, office door. It'll be, you know, in a church basement. It'll be wherever. But it will continue to happen. Um, but again, what we're hoping, if in fact it does die in the Senate, this bill, Bill C-6, is that we can make some uh, changes to it so that it's protecting all Canadians, not just youth, uh, but everyone. And we're trying to make it so that everyone's protected um, from conversion therapy in Canada. Because what we're saying is that abuse should not be an option for anyone. Um, ever. Ever, right? So that's what we're hoping for. Um, we're waiting to hear back, but that's the state of affairs right now. Okay. And I guess nothing happens in the summer, which is when we're recording this. So every everybody's gone on their summer holidays in, in the government. So... The best we can do is, is is see what happens when they come back in the fall. Exactly. Exactly. So Lucas, you are amazing. I have I could talk to you forever. And 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 thank you for being so brave and thank you for for doing all the wonderful things that you're doing. And I want to support what you're doing. And I know there'd be a lot of people out there listening to this who want to support what you're doing. So how can we do that as one of my first almost wrap-up questions? What can we do to support you? Uh, I think I would I would be indebted to anyone and everyone who wants to follow me on social media and share my work. 
Uh, I post a lot of the articles that I write or the different podcasts I'm on uh, or radio interviews or whatnot online. And so to to share my work would be wonderful. Um, the work that I do is not paid for. Uh, my my work, uh, my my paid work uh, is what I teach. But uh, I'm a sessional lecturer, so <laughs> we don't make we don't make too much. Um, but uh, it would be wonderful, you know, for the work that I do in regards to my writing, uh, particularly about conversion therapy and evangelicalism and whatnot. Uh, for you to follow me on online and to uh, to share my work, I would be indebted uh, to anyone and everyone who would be uh, willing to follow me uh, and be alongside me on this journey. Absolutely. Consider that a checkbox. And what's the major social handle you want to do a call out to now? So the two major handles that I have, I have uh, Instagram. My handle is at Luke Slam Dunk Wilson. And my Twitter is at Wilson underscore F as in Frederick W. Uh, those are the two that I use most often. Fantastic. So you touched on your sessional lecturer. What are you up to now? I mean, you're you're back in Ontario. This sessional lecturer position is with the University of Toronto, I understand. Yeah. What else? What else is going on in your life like right now? Well, I also will be teaching at Seneca this fall. Uh, I'll be teaching a, a course on Holocaust literature. My training is in literature and my focus is the Holocaust. And so uh, I'll be teaching at Seneca as well. I used to teach at Seneca, but I took some time off and I'll be uh, joining again in, in the fall. Otherwise, I'm finishing my dissertation uh, and my dissertation should be done this year. <laughs> Will it be done this year? I don't know, uh, but it should be done this year, if not next year, academic year, should I say. So this next academic year, it'll be done. So uh, writing my dissertation, applying for postdocs and professorship positions across Canada, the U.S., and uh, in parts of Europe. But by and large, I'm just writing this darn dissertation that hasn't seemed to to wrap up the way that I thought it would. <laughs> it just keeps going. For those of us who just, I mean, barely, I barely scraped through the University of Toronto with a BA because I really just didn't want to be there. Um, the word dissertation is a lovely way of saying you're working on your PhD. Am I right? Yeah. So, so the dissertation is the last step of your PhD, at least PhDs in Canada. In the UK, a very different system. And I write about the children of Holocaust survivors. And I look at the transmission of trauma from survivors to their children, ultimately to their grandchildren. Uh, but I'm writing about uh, second generation Holocaust literature and looking at the ways by which trauma is passed on, not just epigenetically, so through the body or through uh, biology, but through actually the home. You know, the ways that survivors set up their home, how they decorated their home, how they moved through their home, how they controlled their home and, you know, telling their kids to always keep their door open or they were, had to, you know, were obsessive about locking the door or also just sort of domestic habits and whatnot. And how the way that they created the home became in some ways an archive of their Holocaust trauma. And so I look at how that um, is represented in, in second generation Holocaust literature and oral history. That sounds fascinating. Please keep us posted on all that amazing work. I have an article actually coming out in the fall in Canadian Jewish Studies uh, that is talking about actually a Toronto-based author. Uh, she has a graphic narrative, so it's a semi-illustrated novel uh, about her experience growing up with Holocaust survivors here in Toronto. And so I have an article that's coming out uh, in the fall uh, on that topic. We'd love to know more when that article is coming out. So please let me know when we'll publish it on all of our socials for sure. Oh, thank you. I'd love that. I appreciate that greatly. 
Thank you. Thank you, Lucas, for being so incredibly brave. And thank you for all the amazing work that you're doing. This is a subject I've really enjoyed learning about. We stand with you for everything that you're standing for. So thank you very much for coming today. Thank you so much, Marilyn, for having me. I sincerely, sincerely appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Breaking Brave. For updates between episodes, please visit my website, MarilynBarefoot.com. You can also find me at Marilyn Barefoot. That's it for today. See you next time.